pastor at Covenant Hope Church. And uh, we, I wanted to show y'all this. It's not stuck to the wall. But uh, this was our church membership covenant that we all signed coming from Tampa last week. And it was a beautiful send-off uh, from our mother church. And uh, there's 17 of us who signed this covenant with our 17 children as well that are upstairs. And so, um, yeah, and we're just so excited for visitors this morning. And Jim prayed in his prayer about with our mission statement that our desire is to glorify God by building a community that treasures Christ as king. And so we want to make disciples. We want to be a distinct community, not just an hour a week on Sundays, but in each other's lives, encouraging each other, doing each other spiritual good, uh, caring for one another. And, and we, want to, we want to treasure Christ first and foremost. And from that treasuring of Christ, display God's truth, love, and beauty to St. Pete and the nations. And love this city, uh, having the gospel go forth, loving our neighbors, and uh, being bold to proclaim the gospel and love our neighbors. So um, it's great to be here this morning. I'm thrilled to, to bring the word of God for you this morning. So um, I've worked the past 17 years on a college campus in student affairs. Oh, and let me dismiss the children. So if, uh, yeah, ages four four to ten, if uh, elementary age, if you would like, children are welcome in the service, but uh, if you would like, we can go with our background checked workers right now. Big line going out the door. We'll see y'all later. Love you, Phoenix. All right, so I, I've, worked, I've worked in student affairs and residence life specifically the last 17 years on college campuses. And something about student affairs is we do a lot of icebreakers, a lot of team builders uh, constantly. You know, I was an RA, I lived in the dorms. My job was to build community and uh, just kind of care for people and get people plugged in. And so um, one common student affairs kind of icebreaker get to know you thing uh, was that they would we would ask your five primary identities. So if you had five identities that you, that you held the highest, like what, would, what would those be? So what, what comes to mind for you? Some of the things that got mentioned were northerner, southerner, black, white, woman, man, non-binary, Stranger Things fans, dog mom, all sorts of identities that people, people hold up um, as high and meaning a lot to them. My, my wife one time, she was asked to do this in grad school, and uh, she was... She did, Kentucky wasn't her favorite while we were there at the University of Louisville. Um, she wasn't the biggest fan, and so she proudly claimed Flor Floridian as her first identity, uh, just uh, to let her know, to kind of protest uh, Kentucky a little bit while we were there. And I, I remember doing this activity with about 20 people in a room, and as we shared identities, I was the only one who had any semblance of faith or religious belief tied to my identity. And first and foremost, I was a Christian. I was the only one there that, that identified in any way having some, not even a spirituality or, or anything of that nature. And so, um, so much of the Christian faith has to do with identity. And, and this is no different in the book of Philippians, which we will be starting in today and looking at today. In, in Philippi, it was a Roman colony. And as a colony, it was kind of Rome in miniature. 
it was kind of a remote Rome. And it was known for its patriotic nationalism. It had a famous past, this battle of Philippi, where, in which Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated the men who killed Julius Caesar. And it, it served as this, um, this place that was almost a retirement home for war heroes. And, and so a Roman soldier would come and they would serve, and then when they retired, they would go to Philippi, this Roman province. And so it had this privileged and proud present and this, this past that, that was very famous. And so lots of these, these veterans settled there. And so if you ask the citizen of Philippi what their five identities might be, they might say a, a Roman, an officer, a leader of men, a defender of the emperor, a husband, a father. Those might be some of the identities that they share. And in all of this accomplishment and prestige, Paul is calling them to a higher identity. As saints in Christ Jesus who are devoted servants to the one true king. And so identities that wouldn't make, we're going to talk about today, that wouldn't make much sense in the culture of the day. Ones that don't make much sense for us today. In a society where self and happiness are often our greatest ideals, the things that we are striving for. Let us pray that God opens our eyes to what he has for us that is far better than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray as we look at what it means to be a follower of Christ, God, these would be identities that we embrace boldly. God, that in any discussion of who we are, it would never be separate from who you are and what you have done in us. God, grow us in our faith. Grow us to see us, to see ourselves as you see us. Uh, we need your help this morning, Lord. Be with me as I, as I share your word. And anything that is of me, I pray that it would fall silent. And anything that is of you, Lord, I pray that it would penetrate hearts. This would be more than mere head knowledge, Lord, but it would be things that we apply to our lives and live out in our daily walk. In your name we pray. Amen. So, by God's grace, we've just started a new church. It's pretty awesome. And for our first sermon series, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians. We believe God's word is most beneficial when it is taught in its proper context. And we believe that God's word is most powerful when it is not diluted or skipped over. Uh, you know, having certain parts skipped over, or emphasizing certain parts over others. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and this allows God's word to set the agenda, not man's. And so growing up in some churches, I remember once a month they would preach on a certain topic all the time. And even as a kid, I was like, man, this, pre this, this church preaches a lot on giving. You know, or they preach or whatever the topic may be. And every month we're talking about this same thing again. And so the Bible helps us avoid these pits, pitfalls. It keeps us balanced. And so in the Bible we see God's wrath alongside his mercy. His love alongside his justice. His divine sovereignty alongside man's responsibility. Challenging, convicting, heart-piercing words next to beautiful, encouraging words. Both easy-to-understand passages and some awkward, hard-to-understand passages. But all of it is God's word. We see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped 
for every good work. And so for the next 22 weeks, we're going to go through this entire book of Philippians. I invite you to read it in the coming weeks. Uh, it's, it's a, you can read this whole book daily. It's only four chapters, uh, but they're jam-packed with goodness. And so I was just, as I was reading through Philippians over and over, you know, Paul covers so many good things in this letter. It, it was essentially like a greatest hits album as I was just going through, like, man, this verse is in here, this verse is in here, wow. Like, Philippians is so encouraging. Um, I don't have the statistics to back this up, but if there were a, you know, book that's most featured on mugs and Christian t-shirts, I'd imagine Philippians is a winner, if not, probably top three at a minimum. So, um, there's just a lot of goodness. So, uh, this is the letter where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is a letter where Paul says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a letter where we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the letter where Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The letter where Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The letter where we find the phrase that our citizenship is in heaven. It's the letter where Paul exhorts us to, to be anxious for nothing. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the letter we're told the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's a letter where Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You might have heard that one before. Um, and then lastly, the letter where he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. So these are a few of the well-known verses for this letter, and I hope hearing all these wonderful passages of Scripture excites you to be going through this book together. Uh, today we are going to start by doing something that is hopefully helpful and a little different when starting a new book. We're going to look at an overview of the themes and context of the book of Philippians, and then our sermon text will be Paul's greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So to start in our overview, we're going to take a look at the start of the church, some of the common themes found throughout the book of Philippians, and look into the life of Paul and what he was experiencing when writing this letter. So let's first take a look at how the church at Philippi started. In Paul's second missionary journey, we see the starting of the church in Philippi. Its account is in Acts 16, if you want to turn there in the Bible, Acts 16. Paul sees this vision to go to Macedonia. And we'll read a few verses together, starting in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Treos, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Something, something interesting to note, had there been a Jewish temple there, it shows that there was not a big religious influence because it would have taken 10 people, 10 heads of household to start a temple, and that wasn't even there. But there was this place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul gets this direction from the Lord to go to Macedonia. And Paul finds this place of prayer. And through this encounter, a lady named Lydia, who she becomes a Christian, this, this seller of purple goods. She may have been spiritual, believing in some form of God, but when she hears the gospel, her life is changed forever. And this is how the church of Philippi begins. It's an awesome reminder that the church is not a building, but it's a people. You know, Paul coming in, he didn't go erect a building, but he started by sharing the gospel with a person. And through, the, through, that, uh, through that encounter, this person was saved. And Lydia not only became the first convert of the church of Philippi, but she was a pretty gifted businesswoman who sold those purple goods. Purple was pretty premium back then, not, not a real natural color. Um, and she opened up her house, and it was a meeting place for the church to start. And so from here, Paul's time in Philippi gets even wilder. I encourage you, if you want to go read the rest of Acts 16, um, Paul, uh, you know, when you get home or later today, but uh, when Paul, even from, this, from here on, um, th they encounter a slave girl who has an evil spirit inside of her, and she is, uh, they, they, they wish the evil spirit, or they, they drive the evil spirit out of the girl. And uh, her owner, who had used her, her spiritual talents, uh, her possession, as a way to make him money, became mad with Paul and Silas. And through, through this, Paul and Silas get beat up and thrown into jail. And in jail, you may have heard of the Philippian jailer, uh, they, they're worshiping God in jail, in this dingy old jail. And they're praying and worshiping aloud, and all of a sudden an earthquake happens, and all the doors are opened. And the jailer goes to end his life because all these prisoners are going to escape. But Paul, Paul doesn't leave. And so and through this, the Philippian jailer is saved as well as those of his household. And so just an awesome story of God's providence and God's hand working and helping Paul all the way through. And so through these events, a church is formed in Philippi. And Paul has since left this church. And it's been around for maybe about 10 years old. It's less than 10 years old at this time that Paul is writing this letter to them. And so besides it being God's glorious word, which is beneficial for us in every way, why might it be helpful for us as Covenant Hope Church, as a brand new church, to be going through the book of Philippians together? So as we look at the themes of Philippians, first Paul is writing to give encouragement in Christ. The first theme we find throughout this letter is encouragement and joy. It is such a joy-filled letter, and it's such an encouragement. If we think about some other New Testament letters, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth to rebuke them of their perverse sin, uh, writing to the church of Galatians to help them to go away from conforming back to Jewish ritual and law. But this letter of Philippians, 
he lets them know what an encouragement they are, that they've been to him, and he encourages them all the more to pursue Christ with everything that they are. They've been such a blessing and support to his ministry throughout all these years, and he wants them to pursue Christ further, to further make Jesus the center of their lives. He wants their actions, their thoughts, their goals, their source of strength and pursuits to be found in Christ. And brothers and sisters, I am so encouraged by the way God has already built and equipped this church. We are so blessed. We've got, in, in our membership conversations, we got to hear story after story of God's grace in your lives. And as we prepared for this new church, it's amazing that still, God still has so much to do with us. We have so much more that we can grow in Christ. And if, if we could see how much more we could grow, I think we'd be astonished by what God is doing. He's done so much in our lives, and yet there's so much that we have yet to walk in. And so Paul is writing, encouraging them not to rest on this grace that they've been given, but to walk in it, to pursue it even further. And not only is this letter chock full of encouragement, it exudes joy. In Philippians, we encounter the unconquerable joy that comes from knowing Christ. So if you think about, you may have heard the difference between happiness and joy. Think about happiness. Happiness is the absence of sorrow. When we're doing something fun, something we love with our loved ones, we are, we're happy, right? There's, a, there's an absence of sorrow. But this happiness is not joy. Joy is the presence of God. And so when we lose a loved one, when a hurricane hits, when the trials of life come, we can have an all-sustaining joy because we are in the presence of God and it is despite circumstance. And this is, this is the difference between a temporal happiness that fades away as soon as our circumstances change and an enduring joy that is rooted in the eternal loving, providential God. And so this joy and encouragement is in the midst of these adverse circumstances. So Paul's own life serves as an example for us. He was, when he was writing this letter, he was in, unjustly imprisoned in a Roman jail. If you know anything about jails at this time, these are bleak circumstances. There's not rec time, you know, you're not, uh, you don't really have scheduled meals or anything. It was kind of like if someone doesn't bring you food from the outside, you're just going to die. Like that was the plan to have cells open up eventually. Oh, there's a new cell open. This guy died. So um, it was not, um, it was very, uh, you were on the brink of death and thinking about the end um, when you were in jail. And so if you didn't have people that loved you and provided for you. And so every word we read in this letter if we just think about it, it's written by someone who is facing the possibility of death. Paul's time is running out. And the weight at which it carries should be all that much greater for us hearing it. Paul has great enduring joy despite his circumstance. And so in addition to an encouragement and a joy, a second prominent theme found in Philippians is friendship. This is a letter of friendship. Paul has this great affection for the Philippians. They are truly his partners in the gospel. We see in Philippians 2.25 that the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul and bring him provisions while he was in jail. 
And this is actually the means by which God used uh, to get this letter back to the, uh, to the Philippians on Epaphroditus' return trip. And so they are so thankful for Paul's ministry, and, and his heart is so full of thankfulness for them. And this, there's such a like-mindedness, a supportiveness as brothers and sisters in Christ. And just to give you some context for this trip, this is no like Uber Eats gift card that they were providing Paul. This is uh, 700 miles by land or 900 miles by sea it would take to travel from, from Philippi to Rome. And so he, Epaphroditus risked his life to, to save Paul, to, to serve him, to, to give him food and, and to minister to him. And so the church of Philippi generously supported Paul in the past, and they are doing the same now. So just imagine if, if all Christians had this mindset, if all churches had the same spirit and support of one another. You know, as we raised support and made partnerships for the plant, I was blessed to find out that there are many churches who do, that want to see the gospel flourish, that are not about just making their own church or building our kingdom. We're meeting in one right now that has a kingdom mindset and, and wants to help and encourage us however they can. So just as we grow in Christ, how amazing if the body of Christ exudes the same care that the Philippian church has for Paul. And one last theme I want to emphasize that will be particularly important as we set out in the days ahead as a new church. This theme is unity in the church. Paul seeks to correct a problem uh, with disunity and rivalry that's popped up amongst the Philippians. He urges his readers to imitate Christ in his humility and in his servanthood. The church at Philippi was struggling to stay united. Their founder had been thrown in jail. Uh, you know, that, that's got to be a little bit of a test of faith. Uh, they were once this very close-knit community and this family that was made possible by the gospel, but it's beginning to fracture and break. And even as Christians, when we live in this kind of close community with each other, uh, the community that we're designed for, we're going to experience friction. You know, conflict, it's not a matter of if conflict's happening, but when conflict's happening. And the only source of this unity, this true unity, comes in the, the, our shared commitment to Christ. So Paul is urging them to live in this unity found in Christ. And so now that we've taken some time to see the formation of the church, Paul's circumstances and surrounding context, and some themes throughout the letter of Philippians, let's turn our attention to Paul's greeting, the start of our letter in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be easy to overlook a greeting. Kind of when you're reading a Bible, you kind of see it and you're like, oh, this is just kind of some flowery stuff at the beginning. I'm going to get to the meat and to the substance. And you can kind of breeze by um, some, maybe the, the formalities of a greeting. But there's actually a lot of meaning found in these greetings that I want us to look at today. So Timothy is included here in the greeting as he would sometimes serve as Paul's secretary and he most likely dictated the letter while Timothy wrote it down. In some introductions, Paul has spoken more formally 
He's, he's proven his apostleship to, to maybe some Jewish questioner, questioners or those that would be tempted to believe and fall back uh, to the Judaizers' faith. Uh, but here there is more familiarity. They know Paul, and they know what he is about. He has nothing to prove to them. And so we talked earlier about our top five identities. What we would, if we had to talk about our most important identities, which we carry. Notice what Paul calls Timothy and himself. Servants of Jesus Christ. And this title of servant would seem so backward to many in Philippi. This word for servant had the same meaning as the word slave. A slave who lived in total subjugation to the will of their master. Someone who was not free. And Paul was the founder of this church, and yet he takes this lowly position of a slave. This would totally push back against these Roman ideals of status, of rank, of positional authority. But to Paul, this title of servant was one of honor. Maybe not in man's economy, but in God's economy. Just look at the next chapter in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is unlike any man. With all the power and perfection of God, yet in humility he emptied himself, eventually being murdered unjustly on a cross to pay as a payment for the sins of his people. And through this unjust imprisonment, Paul knows where his example comes from. He knows where his strength is found. It is in the power of Christ. And it is an honor for him to have the same calling, the same position that his precious Savior held. God changes our hearts to see serving in the same way. I remember as being told as a kid, it's better to give than receive. And I was like, y'all got to be joking, right? Surely these people have never had Christmas or something or Santa. You know, there, there's no way. It's always better to receive, right? In our natural bent as sinners, we have the wrong goals from the start. We want to seek our greatest glory, our greatest comforts. But God changes our hearts. And when we become believers, he opens our eyes to things more grander than ourselves and stuff. And when we see how grand he is and what he has done for us, our desires are changed. And we want to serve him. We want to love others. We want to reach our city and all those that God has put in our path with the life-changing power of the gospel. And when believers, we freely and joyfully accept our position as servants, we will be united and effective in service, serving each other and serving the God who is, who, serving those who God has put in our path. We may claim the name slave, but we know that in the one we serve, we are truly free from the penalty and bondage of our sin. We read in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, does this sound like a man-made religion to you? Who would want to find their identity in being a servant? 
something is different here. Christians, although they do it imperfectly, they find their glory not in themselves, but in the service and in the worship of the one who knit them together and who created them for worship. Brothers and sisters, when you serve others, do you joyfully giving, give of yourself, knowing that you are following in the footsteps of Jesus? Mothers, when you pour out yourself in serving your family, as that God, as God has called you to, do you, do you consider it an honor to carry the same privileged position as Christ? Fathers, do you work hard to serve your family, humbling yourself, knowing that you operate out of Christ's strength? Children, do you seek to serve your family and honor your parents in all the power of Christ? Fellow, as weird as it is to say it, fellow servants and slaves, it is an honor to be counted with the same status as Christ. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Next, Paul addresses the church. He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul claims the identity of a servant for himself, and then he addresses the Christians of Philippi as saints in Christ Jesus. This is addressed to all saints. And this is promoting unity. There are no social or moral distinctions. Any Christian from the newest convert to the wisest believer, no matter their past, no matter their, their stage in life, can boldly carry the title of saint. Not because we have attained some special status in the church for ourselves, but because we are made righteous in Christ. We turn from our sins and we trust in the perfect life that He lived and trust in his atoning work on the cross, and his power over sin and death in the resurrection, we are forgiven of our sins, and we carry his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we are all saints. Prior to Christ, we are in bondage to our sin. But in Christ Jesus, all God's people are holy. We are declared righteous so that we can carry the title of saint. Man, don't you want that on a business card? Our Twitter bio? Man, what might life look like if we walked more and more in this identity that we have been so freely given? One commentator said that when Paul spoke of the Christian being in Christ, he meant that the Christian lives in Christ as a bird in the air, a fish in the water, the roots of a tree in the soil, what makes the Christian different is that he is always and everywhere conscious of the encircling presence of Jesus Christ. Paul moves on to his introduction. He says to the saints who are at Philippi, but this is secondary because their residence is in Christ. Philippians would have had, they would have led with this. We are Philippians but more primary to location. This, that's just where you're at. Your residence is in Christ. So who are the saints who are at Philippi? With the overseers and deacons. And so overseers is the word used interchangeably throughout the New Testament uh, when referring to pastors, elders, overseers. So they, they can be used interchangeably. Please don't call me an overseer, though. 
uh, yeah, it just sounds sounds funny. But um, if you do, it'll be all right. But uh, <laughs> overseer Ronnie just sounds. I don't know. I feel like I should be in a warehouse, like stamping things or something. But um, these two biblical offices, both are in service to the church, but they have different functions. Simply put, deacons are lead servants, and they're they're helping meet the needs of the church. Well, the office of elder, pastor, overseer, they are servant leaders looking to care for the flock and lead the church through the ministry of word and prayer. So why does he designate overseers and deacons? Some have thought that it was a way to honor them. There's definitely some truth to that, but primarily I believe it was to promote a unity and heal divisions that might arise in a society that would be so easily fall prey to rankings and divisions and status. The temptations for leaders to seek out the superior position for themselves in this society that emphasized hierarchy. The overseers and deacons are not over the church, but are together with the church, part of the church, serving alongside them. The overseers and deacons are accountable to the body. They are not a privileged status above the flock. You know, Paul... When we talk about, you know, TV, there's TV shows like Pastors in L.A. or, uh, you know, a, a guy got robbed a couple weeks ago and a pastor got robbed during his service and he was wearing a million dollars worth of jewelry. Um, you know, in celebrity, maybe celebrity pastors, kind of that celebrity pastor culture. Paul would have no concept of this. Like, it would be an oxymoron to him that, 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 uh, that there's an opposite, like jumbo shrimp, Right. A, uh, a celebrity pastor, you know, or a, um, yeah, something as a lead servant, a servant leader, um, that this would be something that you would use for prominence or greedy gain. Um, this is a position of, of service to pour ourselves out and to love others, not to raise, raise ourselves up. And so in this small address, we see the biblical precedent for multiple pastors and a plurality of elders safeguarding the church and and caring for the church and um, just the wisdom in that. Uh, Not allowing a church to be, you know, we see all these moral failings where there's a lack of accountability. We see where churches quickly become about one person than they do become about the word of God. And so these are just some ways that God is, so carefully um, given, us, given us help to safeguard ourselves through, through these biblical offices. And so Paul goes on in verse 2, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul put together these two great words, grace and peace, that we're tempted to maybe skip over, he's doing something very beautiful. He's taking the normal phrases of two great nations, and he's molding them into one. Grace is the greeting with which Greek letters always began. Gentiles, when when writing letters, they they would use grace. And Jews, when they met each other, peace, shalom, was always always the greeting which they were accustomed to. And each of these own words had its own flavor, but each was deepened by this new meaning with Christianity poured into it. Both these greetings reflect the intersection of Greek and Jewish culture and even the unity that all cultures have when their primary identity is found in Christ. 
greeting also serve as a condensed form of Paul's theology. It is the essence of Paul's theology in two words. Grace is the unmerited work of God in Christ to bring believers into peace with God and each other. So when Paul prays for grace and peace on his people, he is praying that they should have the gift of grace provided in Christ and the peace of being reconciled to God, to men, and to themselves. If we are in Christ, we are all recipients of grace. And through this grace, only can we truly have peace. In just these two verses, we even see three times the name of Jesus is mentioned, presenting this central theme that reappears throughout this letter, uniting everything around the person of Christ. And while this is just the beginning, this whole book is going to point us to the grace and peace found in Jesus. One pastor even broke down each chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 being Christ our life. Philippians chapter 2 being Christ our mind. Philippians chapter 3 being Christ our goal. And Philippians chapter 4, Christ our strength. And as you read through this book, it's, it's no far cry to see where that conclusion was drawn. But all of it centering around Christ. So I'm hopeful that this book will serve as a fuel for encouragement and joy and unity amongst us as we seek to serve our King and live out the life that he has called us to, finding our identity in him. And as we close, I want to point you to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this, this, these six verses, they serve as the foundation which holds the book of Philippians together. If you can only read a few verses in Philippians, Read these, because it is out of these verses where our purpose and identity is found. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. We are sinners who have been redeemed by grace and who are now at peace with our God. We are servants. We are slaves that live in the freedom of Christ. And we are saints that have been redeemed and made holy, counted perfect in the righteousness of Christ. Let us walk in that. Let's pray.